0: We'll be reading from the book of Second Kings, chapter 18, starting with verse 1. The third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, in the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not cease to follow him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses, and the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. From watchtower to fortified city, he defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory. In King Hezekiah's fourth year, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, marched against Samaria and laid siege to it. At the end of three years, the Assyrians took it. So Samaria was captured in Hezekiah's sixth year, which was the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel. The king of Assyria deported Israel to Assyria and settled them in Hala and Gozan on the Haber River and in the towns of the Medes. This happened because they had not obeyed the Lord their God, but had violated his covenant, all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. They neither listened to the commands nor carried them out. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Would you pray with me once again? Father, we pray that you would Quiet our hearts so that we can hear you speak through your word and through your spirit. We pray that you would give to those who needed a word of encouragement this morning, to those who needed a word of rebuke, to all of us a word of grace. Father, we thank you for how you work and the promise that you do work through your word. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, I hope you are so far enjoying your summer. Uh, There's a lot of things, right, in the summer to enjoy uh, there's the great weather, uh, there's the state parks, the cookouts, the hamburgers, the hot dogs, barbecue, of course, baseball, right? Uh, there's amusement parks and roller coasters. It seems like roller coasters in the summer kind of go hand in hand. And I have this love-hate relationship with roller coasters. Uh, I've always loved them. I love when you're waiting in line and the anticipation begins to build, and you try to figure out, okay, we're going to sit in the front, we're going to sit in the back, where we're going. I love it when you're strapped in and the adrenaline starts pumping as you're going up that first steep hill, and then the feeling of weightlessness as you drop and you kind of lift out of your seat, and I love that. But there was this one incident, it was the summer of 2004, I think... I have the ability to laugh at myself and tell a story at my own expense. But there is a limit to that. So I'm not going to tell you the full story. You can find my wife afterwards. She delights to tell this story and laugh at my expense. Suffice it to say, it was a very hot day at Cedar Point. The ride was called The Mantis, one of their best gnarliest roller coasters with loops and corkscrews. It was a hot day, gnarly roller coaster, and a really big burrito for lunch. So, we'll leave it like there. I've this love-hate relationship ever since then with roller coasters. I feel a little bit the same way about the book of Kings and Chronicles. I love it. It's God's Word. God reveals Himself to us through what you learn about His grace, about the kind of God He is, His power, His sight. You learn so much about God and His people through the book of Kings and Chronicles. But it's constantly up and down and up and violently down. And sometimes it just makes you ill. Last week we were in the book of Judges, and Rob detailed the the story of of Deborah, that great woman of faith and what she did. We're we're fast forwarding centuries now into the book of Kings, and we're going to look at the, the reign of Hezekiah, but I'm cheating this morning. We're not just doing Hezekiah, we're trying to get a twofer. We're doing Hezekiah and his son Manasseh. Because I think when you look at these two, you see an illustration for how the whole history of Israel went up and down and up and down, faithfulness and obedience and utter rebellion and wickedness. And As we we look at these two lives, these two reigns, there's a lot for us to learn about what it means to follow God, about the God we serve. Hezekiah, as we just read, was one of the highlights in Judah. He was one of the best kings Judah ever had. His story is told in 1 Kings 18 and a couple chapters that follow, and also in 2 Chronicles chapter 29. He was a good king, it says, who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done. But if you were living in Judah at that time, that would have come as... Probably a pretty big surprise to you because King Hezekiah's physical father, King Ahaz, was not a good king. He closed the doors of the temple and erected high places or, or shrines to foreign gods all over the land. He built Asherah poles and altars to Baal. And so when he died, you would expect his son is probably going to follow in his footsteps. But Hezekiah shows you that, is the t- title of the sermon, the apple can fall far from the tree. He did a complete about face and did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. His first month as king, he opens the temple doors. He cleanses the temple from all the uncleanness he finds there. He reorganizes the priests who had fallen into, well, disuse. And he restores worship of the Lord. Shortly after that, Judah celebrates the Passover for the first time in who knows how long. That great celebration that that remembers and praises God for his deliverance in Egypt. And Hezekiah spends his years tearing down all the false altars, cutting down the Asherah poles, smashing the sacred stones to foreign gods, purifying Judah, and restoring worship of the Lord. Hezekiah was, was righteous. And verse 5 said there was no one like him, not before or after in Judah. He held fast to the Lord. He was a good king. But Hezekiah's righteousness didn't mean everything was perfect. During his reign, there was, and during his life, there was significant trials. Uh, the, the power in the region at that time was the empire, Assyria, the Assyrian empire. They were sweeping through the land. They had come in and taken parts of the northern kingdom, Israel, into captivity. Destroying towns, having their way with the region. And the Assyrian army came all the way to the doorsteps of Jerusalem. Not what you want when you're the king. And the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, sends messengers to Jerusalem to taunt the people. Uh, the messenger yells at the gates and says, Don't trust Hezekiah. Don't trust the prophets of God when they tell you to rely on him for deliverance. All the nations, all the cities that we have conquered, they all trusted their gods. And where did that get them? Why would you be any different? Don't trust God. In essence, he was saying, we're more powerful than your local God. When Hezekiah hears this, he he rips his garments and puts on sackcloth and prays. And Isaiah, the prophet, prays as well and brings word to Hezekiah, the Lord will deliver you from the Assyrian army. And Hezekiah trusted. Think about the amount of faith that that took The messengers had done a good job of sowing doubt. Okay, we're trusting God, but all the other nations were trusting God too. Hezekiah had to believe that his God was different than all the other gods. That his God would prove powerful and his God would save. And he trusted. And it says that God sent his angel And in one night decimated the Assyrian army. It's a good part of Hezekiah's reign. A good story to tell your grandkids. Shortly after that victory over the Assyrian army, which was God's victory, not Hezekiah's victory, right? Shortly after that, Hezekiah falls gravely ill. And the prophet Isaiah comes to him and says, I've got some sour news for you. You're not going to recover from this. And again, Hezekiah falls to his knees and weeps and pleads. And it says God heard his prayer and listened to him. And he sends, God sends Isaiah back and says, Because you've humbled yourself, because you've pleaded and prayed, I'll give you 15 more years of life and 15 more years of your reign. And Hezekiah recovers. During this 15 years, unfortunately, Hezekiah becomes proud. He forgets that everything he has has been given to him. And it seems as though he begins to think the victories are his, the prosperity is his. In Babylon, kind of the upstart in the region, Assyria is still the dominant power, but Babylon's on the rise, they send envoys to Hezekiah. And Hezekiah foolishly opens the gates, opens the storehouses, opens the treasury, and shows them everything. Isaiah says to Hezekiah, what exactly did you show them? And Hezekiah says, there's nothing I didn't show them. I showed it all. And Isaiah rebukes him and says, that was dumb know because you did this, because of the pride of your heart, that one day it's all going to be taken. It's all going to be carried as plunder to Babylon. It didn't happen during Hezekiah's lifetime, but it happened during the lifetime of his sons and grandsons. Hezekiah lives the 15 more years, and he dies at the age of 54. And his son, Manasseh, Begins to reign as a 12 year old. You'd think Hezekiah was great. His son's going to be great. You'd think wrong. Hezekiah, the best. There was no one like him ever in Judah. Manasseh, the worst. The roller coaster. He did evil. You can read about his reign in 2 Kings 21. It says he did, he restored the despicable practices of the nations that Israel had driven out before them. He rebuilt the high places to Baal and Asherah. He put pagan altars in God's holy temple. Instead of relying on prophets and priests, he turned to fortune tellers and mediums and necromancers. He even sacrificed his sons as burnt offerings. You see what I'm saying? Up and down. And sometimes you just get ill reading it. Second Kings 21.9 says, He caused D- Judah to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord had destroyed before the people of Israel. God had used Israel to judge the nations. But now they're doing more evil than the nations had ever done. And so God, through His prophets, declares disaster upon Judah. He says, you'll be swept away. That promise is fulfilled in 2 Kings 24. Babylon, that power that was on the rise, comes to full power, and they destroy Judah. They lay waste to Jerusalem, tear down the temple, and the Bible says it was because of the sins of Manasseh. Because of all the evil he had led them to do. That's how the story of Manasseh ends in 2 Kings. But that's not how the story of Manasseh ends. If you turn to Second Chronicles, you get a, more details. You get a fuller picture of what happened in Manasseh's reign. And you see that despite all of Manasseh's utter wickedness, his sin, his rebellion, his unfaithfulness, God wasn't done with him. During his reign, Manasseh is captured by the Assyrians. It says he's Taken prisoner with hook and chain. That does not sound fun. And he's taken to Assyria. And there, in absolute desperation, he humbles himself. In absolute distress, he humbles himself and prays to the Lord. Confessing, repenting, asking forgiveness. And our gracious God gives it. He forgives Manasseh, his wickedness, and restores him. He restores him to his throne. He goes back to Jerusalem and shows how genuine his repentance was. He goes through and he tears down the high places that he had just built. Tears down the altars, cleanses the temple... Now, I don't know about you, but I mean, this is a seesaw back and forth. But I love, love how that story ends. Repentance, forgiveness. But it does have a sour note. Scripture says that even though Manasseh repented of his ways, turned from his idolatry, yet the people persisted in the sin he had introduced back and forth, up and down. What are we to learn from these stories that seem so distant, so remote? I mean, this is literally ancient history. What are we supposed to take away? I think the lessons are innumerable. But I want us to focus on on five things this morning, and I promise they're not 20 minutes each. Five lessons that this story highlights for us. Uh, First, there's a reminder, I think a powerful reminder, that the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, is not like every other God. That was the taunt of Sennacherib. All the other gods have fallen. They didn't save. They didn't deliver. Why would you trust your God? Because our God is different. He's not some small local deity he's different. In these stories of Hezekiah and Manasseh, you see God's power highlighted. He's the one who delivers from the mighty Assyrian army in a night like that. He's powerful. But you also see his compassion. He cares for the sick king. He's not just concerned with world affairs, he's concerned with the life of Hezekiah, this righteous man who's sick and pleads and God hears the prayer. It has compassion and heals. Power and compassion. You see sovereignty as well. God uses the Assyrian nation as a tool, as an instrument to discipline Manasseh, that wicked king. To bring him to repentance, humility, to soften him to what God was doing. See, sovereignty, you also see God's patience and long-suffering. Israel's history was filled with sin and rebellion and unfaithfulness and adultery and idolatry. And the list would go on and on. And God relented from punishing him. He was patient and he was long-suffering but you also see that patience and long-suffering has its limits. God is also a God of wrath, and you see that in kings as the Assyrian army, and then the Babylonian, Bab- Let me try that again. the Babylonian army sweep in and bring wrath and punishment. But in every page, in every chapter, you see grace. You see God's willingness to forgive. You see His call, if you would just Turn from your wickedness. I'm a God who's slow to anger, abounding in love. You know, our day is not that different from Israel's day. There's people who are standing at our gates saying, your God's no different. There's lots of gods. Why trust your God? They're all the same. And the answer is a resounding no. The God of the Bible is categorically different he's infinite and personal he's sovereign over everything and imminently close to me as my friend he's wrathful and holy and just and gracious and kind and compassionate he's unique he's different trust this God so there's that reminder God is different I think you also read, especially in the story of Hezekiah, a warning. A warning not to allow blessings to lead to pride. Imagine two very wealthy people. Not hard to imagine, right? One of these wealthy people that we're imagining started off from very humble family. He built his fortune. He worked for it. He labored through college, paid his own way, worked hard, took calculated risks, was wise, persevered through difficulty, and amassed a fortune. The other rich man had it all given to him, was born with a silver spoon in his mouth, had everything paid for, didn't work for anything. When things got hard, he ran home to mommy and daddy and they took care of him. He never did anything to help the family fortunes. He just lived on it. Which one has the right to boast in their accomplishments? The one who worked for it, right? Yes. But scripture is quick to remind us that we're not that man. Uh, We're not the one that worked for it and earned it all. We're the one who is poor and was given all of it. Hezekiah forgot that. He thought his victories were his own. His treasure was his own. And he became proud and boastful in it. He let God's blessing turn to pride. And it's so easy for all of us to do. We are so amazingly blessed. And the temptation to be proud in that is ever present. The way you squash that temptation, that tendency to pride, is by reminding yourself of the words of Paul, what do you have that you haven't been given? The talent? No. That was given. The job, no, that was given. The opportunities, the wealth, the health, whatever it is, it was given by God. It's a blessing, not something to boast in. So there's a reminder, a warning. There's also the simple fact that is just, well, it's just right there. Sin has consequences. Don't forget it. We see that every day of our life, right? We might not pay attention to it, but we see it. Even forgiven sin has consequences. I can say some very hurtful things and do hurtful things to my wife, to my kids. And on a good day, not all days are good, but on a good day, I'm quick to apologize. And I ask for forgiveness and my kids and my wife are gracious to forgive but that doesn't mean that the sin the hurtful words doesn't have consequences you can still see the sadness there's still a distance that's created and that's just a small example compound that many times over for for every sin sin has consequences you see it in hezekiah's life his Arrogance, though forgiven, has consequences. All the wealth of Jerusalem would be taken as plunder. You see it in Manasseh. He repented of his sin. It was forgiven by God, but it still had consequences. The people of Israel were now led down a dark path that would lead to destruction. And we see it in our own lives. Sin has consequences. Sometimes they're physical, they're easy to point to, but they're always spiritual consequences to sin. When we indulge in sin, we're tuning our hearts to find joy, to find pleasure in sin. And as we're tuning our hearts to find joy and pleasure in sin, we're falling out of line with God. We're out of tune with God and finding joy and pleasure in Him, the true source of lasting and eternal joy and pleasure sin has consequences and that's one of the themes i think of the book of kings and chronicles but it's one we forget so easy because we so we're so heavy on grace amen to grace but it's easy to fall into that mindset that if i sin i'll ask for forgiveness and it'll all be good yes when we confess our sin he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin But sin always has devastating consequences. And that comes out in these stories. So there's a reminder, a warning, and just that brute fact that sin has consequences. There's also an appeal here. An appeal to pay attention to God's discipline. I know that not every painful situation in life is God's discipline. Hezekiah was sick, and you get no indication that that was because of his sin. Job suffered tremendously, and you get no indication that it was God's discipline on him. So not every distress or every painful circumstance is discipline. I know that. But I also know that God has something to teach us in the midst of every painful experience In the midst of every distress. God's there and wants to teach us something. And sometimes. Sometimes God uses. Painful discipline. To open our eyes to sin that we might not even be aware of. And to remind us of the dire consequences. Of unrepentant sin. God. Like a loving father. Disciplines. Corrects, rebukes, and sometimes it hurts, as it did, I'm sure, with Manasseh. So there's an appeal here. Pay attention to God's discipline. Ask, Why, God? Why am I going through this? What are you trying to teach me? And is there hidden sin that you're trying to expose? So there's that appeal. And then there is this wide open invitation to repent, and to find grace. The Old Testament, and I think especially the book of Kings, leads you directly to Christ in the cross. Hezekiah was a great king, but not perfect. Where's the perfect king that we need? It's Jesus. In the book of Kings, with all its ups and downs, highlights how devastating sin is. How committed God is to His holiness and to punishing sin. And it leads you to the cross where sin is punished in the most profound way. On the cross, sin is punished but not Christ's sin. He had none. There we see God the just punishing our sin in the innocent Jesus. And we see grace. You see that God's grace is big enough, wide enough, strong enough to even grab Manasseh, that wicked king and bring him back no one is outside the reach of god's grace you see that in the kings and you see it on the cross that's the length god will go to bring people back into a right relationship with him but the question remains will you humble yourself to accept the grace and the forgiveness offered in Christ through the cross. Manasseh humbled himself. The cross requires that of us. It requires we accept what the cross says about us, that that is what we deserve, and that we accept the grace that is offered there. Not as something we earned, but something we could never earn, but that is freely given. As you read through the Kings and read the parallels in the Chronicles, it is this roller coaster. It's up, it's down, it, it makes you ill. But on every page, there's God. There's God showing Himself to be patient, showing Himself to be mighty, powerful to save, showing Himself to be that Heavenly Father who is lovingly warning people, don't go that way. It leads to destruction and disciplining His people to bring them back to repentance and ready, ready to give grace to those who would humble themselves and receive it. Would you pray with me? Father, we do pray that through Your Spirit You would be working now in our hearts. We pray that You would humble us Prepare us to receive your grace in freshened, new ways. Father, we pray that you would be drawing us deeper, deeper into faith, deeper into repentance. Father, remind us that any, anything we trust other than you is idolatry. Help us not to follow the patterns of Manasseh, but to follow your Son, Jesus Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.